0: You know, you're running to an emergency situation and I'd always stop probably about 10 yards before I was going to be at my destination, take a deep breath and walk in. And that slowdown was important for me, you know, versus like running in a million miles and you haven't gathered yourself. I became much more comfortable with the chaos. You know, I became much more comfortable walking into a chaotic environment because I had done it so much. And that didn't mean my heart rate wasn't up. That didn't mean I didn't still have that sense of uncertainty. Was I going to be able to help? What was going to be the situation, et cetera, that I, I think is natural as humans that, you know, I, and I don't think anyone is immune to that. It's just you learn how to better handle those feelings.
1: Hi, folks. I'm Dan Dworkis, and this is the Emergency Mind Podcast, a space where we bring together lessons from the emergency department and beyond about performance when it matters the most and applying knowledge under pressure. Our guest this episode is Dr. Jen Wagner. Now, Jen is the chief medical advisor for the Liminal Collective, and prior to this, she has practiced pediatric anesthesia at Stanford University, the University of Utah, and Shriners Hospital for Children. She served as the Associate Residency Director for the Combined Peds Anesthesia Residency at Stanford and was also one of the anesthesiologists responsible for coordination of daily OR services and functioning. Combining all of this with her personal training as an athlete, she has decades of experience in the application of medical science to the pursuit of pushing human boundaries and human performance. Now, there is so much good stuff in this conversation that we had to split it into two parts. So the first part, episode 71A, which is what you're listening to right now, looks at building individuals who excel under pressure in the medical world, drawing on Jen's deep experience as a learner and then teacher of pediatric anesthesia. In the second part, episode 71b, we're going to talk more about Jen's work with the Liminal Collective and about the power of being uncomfortable and vulnerable on the path to greatness. A quick reminder before we get after it, if you're enjoying the Emergency Mind podcast, there are a few great ways that you can become more involved with the community and with what we're doing here at the Emergency Mind Project. First, you can sign up for our newsletter, Knowledge Under Pressure, at emergencymind.com slash signup. Also, if you're looking for a way to support the project more directly, you can go to our Patreon page and make any sort of a contribution. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash emergencymind anything you feel like contributing would be deeply appreciated. Also, we have a new email where you can send comments or ideas for future guests or actually really anything about the podcast. That email is podcast at emergencymind.com. Not the most inventive name for an email, but it definitely gets the job done. Okay, all of that said, let's jump right into this episode, episode 71A with Jen Wagner. I hope you enjoy. All right, Jen, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It is great to sit down and talk with you about all of this around human performance. This is something that I loved doing informally with you over various times together. And, and now to stand and do it formally is awesome. So thank you for coming on.
0: Well, thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me. I'm super excited to be here and again, love our chats whenever we get to have them.
1: For folks that don't know you very well, can you give just a 30,000 foot overview of, of who you are and, and what your awesome deal is?
0: Absolutely, thanks. So I was born and raised in Phoenix, Arizona, and then went to college at Clemson University on a soccer scholarship. And after finishing college, headed back to Arizona for grad school and med school. and by training, I'm a pediatric anesthesiologist. I did two residencies and a fellowship at Stanford and University, and then was on faculty there for about eight years. And then our family kind of decided it was time for a change, so we relocated to Park City, Utah where I spent first four years that we were here at the University of Utah and Shriners Children's Hospital. And then about a year ago, took a big career change and left clinical medicine and now work for the Liminal Collective in the human performance world.
1: So much cool stuff to talk about today for that. I also think, I think you're the first guest who's responded to that by talking all the way back from when they were born. And I, I really like that. I think that's great because usually, you know, we start by talking about like, how did you first start thinking about human performance? But I don't, do, do we need to go back to like, Jen is like a tiny, like human. Did you think about yeah. human performances? Okay, great. All right. Absolutely. So we'll, just start, <laughs> we'll start slightly farther along than that. So, So I guess let's jump in, in the medical school, maybe early residency world. Like, What drew you to anesthesia and and then pediatric anesthesia?
0: Yeah. So I matched out of medical school into pediatrics, thinking I wanted to do pediatric critical care. So my husband is an anesthesiologist as well. And so he had gone into his anesthesia residency. And after barely surviving medical school together, I said, the last thing we need to do is go to residency together. So he was off doing his thing. I was doing my thing. And during my Intern year, I took a. I did a pediatric anesthesia elective, and I was super, super fortunate that I was the only resident kind of rotating, and there Mm. were two amazing pediatric anesthesia fellows. And I had never even done an anesthesia rotation as a med student or anything, and they let me really be involved and feel what it was like to do this day in and day out. And they were amazing mentors, and still are to this day. And so. After I had that experience, I sat with it for a while and talked to my program director and I said, you know, I think this might be the direction I wanna go. But then I still wasn't sure. I was like, well, maybe I'll do the whole shebang. Pete's critical care, anesthesia, Pete's anesthesia. And so that was looking at 10 years of training. And so I went ahead and did my second year of my Peds residency and spent a lot of time in the ICU and just kind of decided I really preferred being in the operating room. So after my second year of Peds decided to make a switch and transitioned into the anesthesia residency program at Stanford and then finished my anesthesia residency there. And then because I had started in the pediatric world, it just, it was kind of always my goal to stay there. And so went back and did my pediatric anesthesia fellowship there and then stayed on faculty for
1: quite a while. So for folks that aren't as familiar with the medical world for this, there's like a lot of hidden detail and structure in what Jen just said that's worth really digging into because that's that's a very sort of unique path to take to go through that. The mindsets of somebody who does pediatrics, even pediatric critical care, is very different than the mindset of anesthesia. is very different, I would imagine, and we should hopefully talk about this. in the mindset of pediatric anesthesia and a, a good analogy to think about here is like, yeah, it's all medicine and it's all high paced medicine, but like working on the engine of a diesel truck is very different than working on the engine of an F1 racer or a fighter jet. Like, yeah, they're all engines, but the way that you approach them and the way that you understand and what your mission is and how you do it are pretty wildly different from each other. So that's a really interesting cross-section of different mindsets to be exposed to at, at a really formative point in your career. What did that feel like?
0: Some of it felt like really kind of finding my true self. You know, I had always wanted to take care of kids when I was in medical school and I got there and it just wasn't what I was expecting. I wanted a faster pace. I wanted a higher intensity. And so that's why I was originally drawn to the ICU. But even when I was in the ICU, I felt that I was pulled in a lot of directions as most ICU physicians are, as Mm -hmm. emergency medicine physicians are. And I loved the ability of being able to focus on one patient at one time in a very critical time period. And so it it just kind of allowed me through all my transitions to really find a field of medicine that fit my personality, fit my mindset, fit my goals, moved at a pace I liked to move at, which is normally very quickly. And so I felt like I was really fortunate. It was a circuitous route, but I felt like I really ended up where I belonged and with also a kind of like minded colleagues that preferred high intensity, high acuity situations that were kind of time stamped. And when it was done, we were done. But while you were in it, you could fully immerse
1: yourself in the moment. You're speaking my language there too. Absolutely. You know, so when we go through these selection and training processes like we do in a residency or like multiple teams do that work in both of our worlds we are changed by that you don't emerge from that the same person that you were before it right it it Mm -hmm. alters you as a human being Mm -hmm. but at the same time the way you're describing it which is the way that i describe it also is that you're drawn to certain things because that's the way you're shaped when you start Right. So what was it that shaped you into that when you were starting this? You're talking about wanting the high impact, high intensity, rapid fire, thinking that that felt good for you. Where do you think that came from?
0: I think at baseline, I've always been a really competitive person. I was involved in competitive sports from the time I was super young. I have an older brother. I was always chasing him, wanting to do what he did, wanted to be better at what I was doing than he was doing. So I think I've always been a really competitive person. And then when I got to college to play sports, all of a sudden you get to the narrower and narrower part of the funnel. And I went from being one of the best usually on a field to like, oh, I was not even close to being one of the best on the field. And so really having to work hard to compete and just kind of developed a sense of grit that I hadn't had before because I never had really needed it. And so I loved being challenged in that way. and. Having to work really hard in a very intense environment to get the results I wanted. And I think I just carried that drive into medical school and into training and wanted to be in situations and environments that I could have a similar experience in, that I could feel driven, feel challenged, feel the need to move very efficiently, and have to work hard. And so I think that that mindset just kind of developed probably through college. And then I always tried to find and i don't think i was conscious of this at the time i just found like when i was in those environments i was thriving i was happy i was fulfilled i felt like i had a great sense of purpose and i also felt like i when at the end of the day that i had completed something and that chapter was then done and i was ready for the next challenge the next day and so i really liked that environment and i think the environment helped it was kind of a wheel the environment helped reinforce the mindset and the mindset craves the environment. And so it just kind of carried on
1: and on. And was that something that was talked about on your soccer team? Like was mindset and sort of like the mental side of the game, something you all were aware of at all?
0: Not at all. I I mean, I feel like now we talk about those things, I had great coaches and great mentors. And so, but we talked about focus and attention and hard work. I mean, mindset wasn't really a topic. I'm I'm older than you, Dan. It was a long time ago. (laughs) So I don't think I knew to put a name on that for a long, long time. And you know, I don't think, as you all know, in residency education, we don't do a very good job or have it for years. I think we're getting better about talking about mindset and talking about a lot of the stuff that we're on here today to talk about. But that wasn't really named. You were just kind of expected to do Mm. it. And so I felt fortunate that I enjoyed it. And it's, fit my personality, but I don't think I ever knew how to develop a formal mindset around it or describe it that way until much later.
1: So in medicine and in medical education, we often talk about this thing called the hidden curriculum, right? Which is we teach how to do X, Y, and Z, but we expect that you know how to do A, B, C, D, like all of the things, including X, Y, and Z. And that other stuff that nobody teaches, but you're expected to somehow pick up and learn is often called the hidden curriculum. There are strengths and weaknesses to that approach. One of the things that's commonly directed at or used for, or assigned to, or whatever the word for the verb is there, is this idea of how to perform in high stress moments, right? That this is tech, this is usually part of the hidden curriculum. It's like, oh, just watch the other people do it and you'll sort of like figure it out. Do you think that that's like, does that map onto your experience in soccer also? Like, were you looking at the people above you and was there a sense that like the leaders and the captains would teach the juniors or was this just like completely off of the map?
0: I think there was, leadership by example. And I think that there were, you know, people on the field or on our team that set expectations for others kind of silently. They went out and worked hard every day and expected that of others. And I think that was pointed out more as work ethic. And they weren't always the best players on the team, but they were the people that were out there working, you know, they were practice first, were on the field first, they left last, you know, were the first out of a water break, all of those little tiny things that in the end makes a difference in how a team performs because you are held to the standard that they are setting. So I think that that the example was put out there without necessarily being obviously stated all the time. And I agree with you. I feel like there are things that were just expected. It was expected. You know, it's funny. My children today laugh. Our coaches mantra was early is on time. And so if you showed up at practice on time, you were late. And you know that translated into the operating room. If you know, shows me now are at seven thirty. If you roll in at seven thirty, you're late. You know, you need to be in, have a patient in there five minutes before that. So you know, all of these lessons kind of transferred. But again, I think it was more led by example. And I, I hope now we're doing a better job of articulating what these hidden things are, because I feel like it puts some trainees, team members, whatever environment you're in at a disadvantage. And I know I'm so guilty of this, of having expectations of others that I've never explained and then being frustrated or disappointed when they don't exhibit the behaviors I'm expecting them to and where a very simple conversation would have cleared that up. And I think I was that way for years because that's the environment I grew up in that I just was fortunate enough to be able to understand the unspoken expectations and meet them. But that doesn't mean everybody has those skills, and I took that for granted for a long time.
1: Well, there's there's so much to unpack from that, including like a really wonderful anesthesia delay joke, which we're gonna skip. Uh, (laughs) But I wasn't reading
0: the paper. Drinking.
1: Sometimes, (laughs) but if you're not in medicine, that joke makes no sense. But that's okay. (laughs) It's really fascinating because the reason that I want to go back and talk about like soccer, right? Because like mm-hmm. like this is such a, a sort of a different part of your life is that we're really talking here about like priming the pump, right? We're like, what did you come into your really formative experiences of pressure with and why? And and what do we know about how priming the pump for different people works in different environments? Because one of the, the really strengths of the system that you pointed out about like, oh, who's coming out of the water break hot? Who's like moving around like that is that you're really talking about building a culture of excellence through these moments and these actions that we choose. They're the sort of like it's a different use of the word hidden here, but they're sort of like the hidden moments that we do. They're the things that fall between the cracks for stuff. It's how you move in and out of a room in the operating room? How do you move in and out of a room in a trauma bay that really like sets the tone and builds this culture of excellence around individuals and teams? And when you're talking about articulating the values that we have and having these conversations, like a really interesting precursor to that is like, if you're my instructor, if you're teaching me, you have to know what that thing is and be able to identify it as a thing before we can talk about it. And and I wonder out loud a little bit, like how much of this is just our instructors are still learning like what the hell these things are before they can even start talking about them. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I I agree. I think it's, it's really complicated and I don't think we have very sophisticated language developed around it. You know, I think there are different life experiences that kind of prepare you and subtly teach you these things along the way. You know, I was fortunate to play team sports from the time I was five. Mm -hmm. And so having to work with a group of individuals who are different towards a like-minded goal, you know, winning a game or whatever we were doing, kind of teaches you to expect things of others that go unspoken sometimes. And so I think you learn to develop these the kind of other senses that you use. You know, you watch what people are doing, you listen to what people are saying without necessarily giving direct advice. But I think it's something that can start early. You know, I think if coaches and I do hear that because now that I have children of my own and they're playing sports and I listen to the conversations that their coaches are having with them, mindset and some of these less tangible things are discussed at a really early age where I was told Get out there, kick the ball, and run faster. You know, and in that part, the mental side was not really brought in until much further along in my athletic career. But now, even my kids in elementary and middle school, when they started playing competitive sports, I feel like these conversations are happening more and more, which is great because maybe that means our language and our ability to verbalize and talk about these skills gets better. Because I do feel that people who fail in some high pressure environments may not have failed necessarily if they had better tools. And so I think learning what those tools are and how to implement them correctly is a huge step in educating from the time we're little all the way up until continuous as we're adults.
1: Yeah, let's jump into that bucket. That sounds super interesting. So what (laughs) are, like people that fail under high pressure environments might not have failed if they had better tools. Yeah, I totally, totally agree with that. What does that look like to you? Or what what do you think about when you think about those sort of broad brushstroke tools like that? You
0: know, I think you can think about it in so many environments. You know, I think about some of the residents I trained in the operating room when things were not going well and they'd be just stuck over on the wall. And I'm like, no, 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 you need to get in here. We need help. I need you to do some things. You just need to to move and act and not think and worry so much right now. And I'm sure you've seen that in your world in Trauma Bay. And there are other trainees and younger people who get that and they, they're they comfortable just getting in and getting involved and they don't freeze or panic. And I go back and wonder if the person who felt panicked under pressure to the point they were unable to act, if they had some tools, if they had an ability to do a little self-talk that, wow, this is a situation I need to get into. It's uncomfortable, but I know I can do it. You know, even back it up to Athletic days, you know, missing a penalty kick in a shootout from a person who maybe, you know, or watching an NBA player miss a free throw in the NBA finals. Like, what could have been different or what could they have done better to maybe calm themselves in that moment and be able to perform better? You know, I think it affects everyone differently at different times with whatever else is going on in our lives. But I think overall, if we did a better job of kind of creating a toolkit, whether that's two seconds of breath work, you know, or just even, being able to quickly scan and say, what is going on with me that I am so fearful or anxious that I can't act and being able to identify that might be able to lead to better success of handling those emotions.
1: Yeah. And like, what an amazing ripple that would be in terms of like humanity, right? (laughs) If we're able to really like unlock more of that potential within ourselves from that cross, across domains and across areas.
0: Yeah.
1: I think that's very true. I I look back at some of the first times that I was involved in like real emergencies and my instinct at that point, and this is why I think the priming the pump thing is so fascinating for me. Like, Like, I wasn't one of those people that automatically jumped into most situations. I did sometimes, but I didn't in others. And then I sort of got curious about like, well, why was that? What's the difference in there? And now, you know, you, you have to pry me away from the situation with a crowbar, right? Because I'm, I'm yeah. one of the first in there. And now, as a leader, I actually have to have the opposite effect, which is that I have to slow myself down and not move forward because I need my juniors to have that practice and that training of moving mm-hmm. forward towards the thing, which is a whole different story. That we can talk about it. <laughs> yeah. You know, thinking about how to switch from from doing a training and a lot of this. But you're right. Like, what are the toolkits that we can arm folks with that work across disciplines that allow us to really Achieve so much more of our potential in these high-pressure moments. You know, if you could just answer that in two to three words, that would be. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, no problem. <laughs> can't,
1: can't even finish that sentence. Sorry. Okay. So let, let's let's like uh, approach this from a couple angles. So yeah. we talked about priming the pump. Let's jump in a little bit forward in time towards towards a lot of this anesthesia training and, and anywhere in that whole arc of residency or critical care work or fellowship, geez, what was this all like then? Where did you get this focus on human performance? And what was that like? Because I think from the outside world, most folks think that anesthesia within medicine are one of the leaders in this field, right? There's the whole ANTS thing, the anesthesia non-technical skills, which is the best acronym ever. And there's all of this work that seemingly goes into it that we in emergency medicine and in other places sometimes feel kind of behind on. So what, what is that like?
0: You know, I think it is, it's such a strange field. And, you know, I knew nothing about it when I was a pediatric resident. These kids would leave the floor and go away into this black box that was anesthesia and surgery. And hours later, they'd come back and I'd get a phone call to write some orders or something. And I had no idea what happened. And so then kind of entering that black box was super eye-opening, first of all. But I think anesthesia is a field of anticipation a little bit that, you know, there's so many references, as you all well know, between anesthesia and the airline industry and even NASA, that everything should go according to plan. You know, the plane should take off, travel, land, passengers get off, really should be pretty uneventful. And that's what everybody hopes for. And you know, I, I used to hope to have boring days. That's what I was, you know, everything was going well if my day was boring. If my day was, was not boring, A lot of it depended on my ability to anticipate what was happening. And I think you sometimes have to be reactionary. You can't anticipate everything, but I think, you know, having a better understanding of, of the entire situation of what was going on, not just my particular role in that situation. So like I needed to know what the surgeons were doing. I needed to understand what, the surgery entailed, where where parts were riskier, where parts were more stable. You needed to know the personnel in the room. You know, do I have a brand new nurse who's never done this before? Do I have someone that's done this 40 times and could actually be a really good source of information for me if we get into trouble? So I think that mindset is really important to understand all the variables. And I think the training has evolved to really respect that. So when we do training and simulation, a lot of it is resource management and figuring out who's in the room, who you have with you, how to respond to things, how to anticipate a bad situation, how to communicate through those. Because you you do become the leader when things are going poorly, because most of the time the surgeons are focused on fixing while something's going poorly and you're left to direct the rest of the room to try to keep things on, on track as much as possible. So a lot of these mindsets and skills come back to that, that it's not necessarily, you know, almost anyone can learn to do our technical skills. That's just repetition. But it's really the management of the room and the management of the situation and having a better understanding about what is going on on the other side of the curtain. So having a better understanding of of other people's roles and where things could go wrong.
1: So you mentioned that you all trained that in sim, are you training that separately from the technical skills? Are you training them together at the same time with the technical skills? A
0: lot of times it was separate. I mean, a lot of times you you did a few technical skills while in the simulator, you know, Mm -hmm. but a lot of times it really was more training crisis resource management and skill training was done separately. So it was training scenarios that fortunately we don't see a lot of you know, there's this really strange complication in anesthesia called malignant hyperthermia,
1: which I was just thinking about that. Yeah, yeah, which yeah.
0: you know is a really, really rare side effect of anesthesia, mm-hmm. and we don't see it a lot. Some people go their whole careers without seeing it, but you have to be able to recognize it if it happens. And so, you know, you we would spend a lot of time as anesthesia has become really safe. We spend a lot of time in the simulator training for. Things that can happen under anesthesia that are particular to anesthesia, but that are very rare. And so it just gave us the ability to practice to recognize it. But most of those situations didn't necessarily require new technical skills, but really required communication skills, resource management skills, and performing under pressure skills that, you know, things were fine, fine, fine you fall off a cliff, things are not fine anymore. And how do you respond in those situations? How do you work together as a team in those situations? How do you lead a team in those situations? So we spent a lot of time in the simulator working on, on those skills, which I think was really interesting because I still like when other, and please fill me in and educate me on, on your world. When we would bring surgeons into the simulator, a lot of times it was skill-based. They were, do, they were practicing surgical skills and they weren't practicing this kind of global management. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just a different approach. And it's probably great for everybody who has to work in a team environment, which is almost most healthcare providers, to have a chance to practice team skills in a simulated environment, to work on the communication, because you do talk to a junior resident different than you talk to an attending surgeon who's done this for 25 years. And, you know, and likewise with our, with our nursing colleagues. You know, if you have a brand new nurse who's never been in there, she's going to need a lot of, he or she is going to need a lot of instruction versus if you have a veteran nurse who's been in this room and in this environment for decades, they're going to be able to instruct other people. So I found that I actually really enjoyed that part of simulation and getting to practice those skills in an environment where obviously the risk was low, but they translate so well into real life. And in so many situations, I mean, not just being in the operating room to, you know, having a difficult conversation with your partner or your children or at school or wherever else these, you know, difficult conversations come up and they need to be able to communicate clearly and directly, et cetera.
1: I love it. Do your kids know closed loop communication?
0: I wish I failed.
1: <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of things really interesting what you said, but, but a facet that really jumped out at me is, you know, we talk a lot and we've talked a lot on the podcast before about halo events, high acuity, low occurrence events, right? These are things that don't happen a lot like malignant hyperthermia that you maybe have never seen before, but you have to be able to move towards the problem set when it comes up as opposed to running away from it. And most of the time when we, where I'm thinking about a case we had recently in my world, an ACE inhibitor or angioedema that ended up needing a urgent cry in the resuscitation bay, which is Y'all can't see Jen's face, but she's grimacing just like I did when, when we had this case. Thankfully, wonderful, wonderful outcome. Okay. But, but it's a halo event. It's a thing that doesn't happen all that often, but you have to be prepared for it and you have to be good at it. And what's interesting in what you said is that it, usually when we train halo skills, we train them as skills. We train the crike. We train the Linton tube. We train the you know thoracotomy, whatever it is, right? Like We train the technical skill around it. But what you're describing is really using halo... Situations as a bridge towards crisis resource management, mm-hmm. which is a really interesting angle in that. That's a subtle difference of vantage point that's incredibly crucial, right? Because unless you're entirely alone, you're still doing crisis resource management while you're running any halo event like that. Mm-hmm. And so it's a really cool, a really cool system set up to really bridge those two things together. I think we're probably underutilizing that in in my space.
0: I think it's a hard combination to get right. And we definitely didn't get it right every time. And I think, you know, and we almost played different roles to be able to practice all of those skills together. But as, as with emergency medicine, you know, anesthesia is one of those fields where you're often a doer and a leader at the same time, which in other realms of medicine really strive to avoid that. You know, they try to have a leader that step back to kind of keep the big picture in mind. But often that's not the case for us, that we have to do and lead at the same time. And so as you guys in the trauma bay, your brain almost has to work on two separate channels. You know, you have your technical brain that's putting lines in or putting tubes in or doing the technical management. And then you have to have more your kind of really cognitive side of thinking, why is this happening? What do I need to do next to stop the direction or change the direction of where we're going? I need to be thinking three steps ahead. Where is that going to take me? And what do I need to effectively manage that situation three steps from now? And so I think that that ability, it's not innate. We're not, at least it wasn't for me for sure. Like it took me time to, to not be so, you know, you have to get technical proficiency to a point where you're not so worried about your technical skill that you don't drown anything out. And I think the other thing is, you know, we're all become trained to use so many senses. I think that that's such a unique part of the types of medicine that we've gotten to practice is that, you know, you're listening to a monitor to tell you information that so you don't have to look up. So you can stay, your vision can stay maybe more focused on the technical tasks that you're doing. But at the same time, you're touching someone and you can feel if they're warm. You can, you can You can just intake so much information And I know that that took me a long time. And, you know, that comes obviously with years, as you all know, years and years of experience to be able to integrate all of those signals and turning it to some meaningful information for yourself. And being able to kind of do that almost subconsciously at a point to then you can take all of that information that's coming in through all of these multiple senses, analyze it quickly and apply it while constantly refreshing that information loop because that sensory input is coming in constantly.
1: Yeah. That dual channel thinking is such an interesting way to put that. One of the prior guests on the podcast, David Marquet, who's a former captain of a nuclear submarine, talks about that in a way that really stuck with me. He talks about red work and blue work, right? So red work is like heads down doing a technical skill in his world, aiming a torpedo in our world, intubating somebody, Mm -hmm. right? Hopefully we don't aim torpedoes. And then the Right. And then the blue work is actually like a heads up overview of sort of the bigger picture and strategic thinking and resource management. And so the the image I get for this is like red work, you're like in intubating position, your eyes are fixed on, you know, the cords and you're sort of like mm-hmm. heads down in it. And then blue work, you're zooming out to sort of look at the patient as a whole and the room as a whole. And one of the things that he talks about a lot that really stuck with me is the transitions between those red and blue moments. Because while it does feel, I think on the inside, like we're doing two channels at once, that's probably not actually true, right? Probably we only have one channel active at any Mm -hmm. time, even when we are absorbing everything from all around us. And so that red to blue and blue to red transition is is really critical. Mm -hmm. How do you think that works? Like, How do we actually transition between those things? How do you do it? How do you train people to do it?
0: Yeah, I I mean that's a really really fascinating question and complicated. I think, you know, it, it's kind of going back to the idea that there's no such thing as multitasking. That mm-hmm. it's just how can you how efficiently can you task switch? And there are some people who I think just naturally are able to whether you want to use switching from red to blue work or task switching can do it almost instantaneously and don't have to consciously think about it, it just happens naturally. I think in my mind, practice is really helpful. So I think being in high pressure, especially simulated environments, you know, where you really do have to believe in the situation and suspend disbelief and get in there and maximize your opportunities to be in these simulations where you can practice that because I think, you know, and we would see this in a maturation of our trainees that, They would, you know, it is comfortable in our world to do a tactical, technical skill. There's a beginning to it, there's a process part, and there's an end to it. And you're using your hands and you're, you're able to single focus on one thing. And so, you know, when we would take our trainees in the simulator in the beginning and put them in these complex situations, they would all focus on the technical skills because that's comfortable. And it's harder and I think takes more experience and more maturity and more comfort to be able to do that and then switch and be able to immediately reassess the environment or even while you're doing it flip back and forth to say okay and, and you know it happens instantaneously after a while you don't know you're doing it you just your brain is switching back and forth and you you feel like you're multitasking because it happens so seamlessly even though I agree with you we're probably not we are probably just have become more and more efficient so i do think that practice really helps with that you know i used to laugh The critical care world gets really frustrated when they come in the OR and see us like running codes and stuff because we are doers and leaders at the same time, which in an ideal world, you don't do. But unfortunately, in our world, that's just the manpower sometimes and you have to. And so I think certain people are probably self-selected that they can task switch a little bit faster. And you know, Mm. we'd have to get someone much smarter than me on here to tell you the neurobiology and neurochemistry behind being able to do that, but- (laughs) I, I do think it is a skill that with practice gets better, but also pointing out, you know, to people who are doing it, the need to be able to do it to say, while you're working on putting that line in, you need to be listening, reassessing what your other senses are. So you need to be able to switch back and forth and not get so focused on one thing that you realize you're then maybe something totally different has happened to your patient because you've focused on one thing and other things are happening and you're just lose your sense of awareness to kind of the big picture situation.
1: So first off, I agree with you. This is a trainable skill. Like zooming in and out and going between the micro focus of a highly technical skill set and the macro or broader focus of crisis resource management within a problem set. I think that's a skill. I don't think it's innate, although like you said, there's probably certain spaces where certain people are better than others at it coming into the pipeline. But I think it's a thing that we need to train and that we don't always do a great job of training. I think to me, that fell a lot in the hidden curriculum side of training. Like, mm-hmm. oh, you just watch people and the better you are at making decisions, the easier it is to task switch. And like, yeah, okay, that's, that's not not true, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you get better at decisions and decisions cost you less energy, you, you have other energy to spend on other things. That makes sense. But I think that one of the things we can do at the beginning is as you're switching back and forth is lighten the load that you're carrying. And this, I guess, really gets into like a cognitive load framework, right? Like if you're doing... We have our intrinsic load of doing the task, our extraneous load of everything else that's going on, and our germane load of actually like building the skill set as we're doing it. So, if you're spending less on germane load because you know how to do the skill, then you have more devoted to intrinsic and buffering extraneous. And then also, like putting yourself in these high pressure scenarios over and over again probably makes you better at handling extraneous load. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I can't prove that. I can't give you like a paper that proves that, but I think that's true. And that's how. I perform and that's how I train people to perform. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that it, it sounds like the same sort of stance that you're taking about this, right? That we can get people better at buffering extraneous cognitive load by exposing them to things that have extraneous cognitive load in like, a, in like an intelligent manner.
0: I, yeah, I agree 100%. I think that that noise becomes softer as you are able to handle it more and more and more. When I was at Stanford, I spent a significant part of my time in a role that was called the anesthesia resource coordinator. And so I carried three phones, one that rang every 10 to 15 seconds for the 12 or 14 hours a day I would have it. And it is just handling thing after thing, after thing, after thing. And you do just, kind. and it also meant any emergency in the hospital regarding a child, I got a phone call for it. And that was a separate phone because the other one rang so much, it was always busy. So I spent, days, weeks, months, years, running to every emergency, whether it was in the operating room, in the emergency department, in the ICU, on the floor, it didn't matter. One of us was always there and it happened to be the one that carried the phone. And I, at times, carried that phone about 80% of the time. And so, you know, you're running to an emergency situation and I'd always stop probably about 10 yards before I was going to be at my destination, take a deep breath and walk in. And that slowdown was important for me, you know, versus like running in a million miles and you haven't gathered yourself. I became much more comfortable with the chaos. You know, I became much more comfortable walking into a chaotic environment because I had done it so much. And that didn't mean my heart rate wasn't up. That didn't mean I, I didn't still have that sense of uncertainty. Was I going to be able to help? What was going to be the situation, et cetera, that I, I think is natural as humans that, you know, I, and I don't think anyone is immune to that you know, I think it doesn't regardless. It's just, you learn how to better handle those feelings. I learned that, yep, you know what? My heart rate's up a little bit. I'm going to be fine because I've done this 200 times now and all 200 times, I still was able to walk out of the room. I wasn't dead on the floor because my heart rate was up, you know? So you just, I think that I didn't necessarily have a feel different physiologically sometimes. Like I was anxious. I was nervous. I was, but I could better handle those feelings. I had a better framework to say, take a deep breath. Let's walk in the room. Let's go through this systematically. And part of my job was to provide a sense of calm in a chaotic situation to walk in and say, what's going on? Where are we? And where do we need to go and help? Cause you know, you've been in these situations many times as well. A lot of times the first person to respond in a chaotic environment may be the least skilled person in the room. And so they really do need a lot of support. And that doesn't mean coming in and immediately taking over, but helping to assess the situation and almost slow everybody down for a second and say, I think creating that mindset, and you know, this is a mindset I've now been able to translate into different Areas of my life to walk in and say, whoa, where are we? What's going on? What are we doing? Or even, you know, you're in a meeting that's going out of control. You just say, let's time out. Where are we? What's going on? And it, I think it helps everyone reset a little bit and refocus and not be so tunnel visioned, which is I think what happens in a in emergency or high pressure situations a lot is we just have our blinders on. We, we get so focused on one situation or for us, one vital sign or one clinical scenario that we think is going on. And we forget to kind of open that lens a little bit and say, are we missing something? And so I found that to be really a helpful framework for myself. And again, this is something that I don't think you have the minute you finish medical school or the minute you finish residency. I mean, I think it takes time. I think it takes being in a supportive environment with people who are not only modeling that behavior, but then talking about it. And I think that we haven't touched on that yet, but I think that was really missing is our ability as a team or as a group to reflect on situations that had happened. And we were better at doing that in the simulator because it was part of the day. But I think we're really bad, at least the institutions I've been in, we're really bad at taking the time To review. And I think that's where you can process a lot of that anxiety and a lot of those feelings and realize that they are controllable. And it just helps put closure to some of that. And I don't think we do a good job of that. And especially now in my new role, when I see how other teams debrief and close things out, I'm like, wow, we're really bad at that in medicine. We are very. We're just on to the next thing. And we don't take time to process. We don't take time to learn. And I think when we don't do that, that those anxious feelings just can be amplified instead of you learning to control them because you never close that loop.
1: All right, folks, that brings us to the end of this episode. I hope you learned something and I hope you enjoyed. As always on this podcast, our goal is to dive deep into what it takes to perform under pressure. Nothing that we discuss here should be construed as medical advice, and all of the opinions that we discuss are our own and are not necessarily representative of any organization with which we were affiliated or for whom we work. If you want to go even deeper and get more involved, don't forget to check out our book. It's called The Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure, and you can find it at emergencymind.com All right.